Hello and welcome to our latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Carl Caldwell, Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up on today's podcast is an interview with Peter Spiller, the longest serving investment trust manager. Peter has managed the Capital Gearing Investment Trust since April 1982. The trust is widely described as a capital preservation vehicle. And in the interview, Peter runs through his thoughts on equity markets, investment trust discounts and gold. First, myself and Tom Bailey, ETF's editor, are going to chat through a couple of news items. Let's start off with a new investment trust that is this week IPO'd, the Schroeder British Opportunities Trust. Tom, the trust has launched despite falling notably short of its fundraising target. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So as you say, uh, Schroeder's new investment trust, British Opportunities Trust, IPO'd on uh, December 1st uh, under under the ticker SBO. The trust has fallen well short of its fundraising target, raising just 75 million, way below its targeted 250 million. As the name suggests, the trust aims to focus on UK companies and says in particular aims to invest in high quality and high growth UK companies, uh, typically valued somewhere between 500 million and the 2 billion uh, pound range. The trust falling short of its target is no doubt disappointing, but it should be noted that it's generally quite a tough environment for launching new UK investment trusts. So two other planned launches were recently shelved due to a lack of investor demand, Telworth, British Recovery and Growth, and of course the UK Buffetology Smaller Companies Trust. So with all these headwinds facing UK equities, you know, COVID, Brexit, etc., perhaps we should at least be crediting Schroders with getting the IP, IPO through the door. And in terms of popular funds and trusts, um, Interactive Investor has just published its latest respective top 10s for the month of November. These top 10s are based on the number of buys during each month. So in this case, November. One notable trend is that investors are looking east for the potentially higher returns on offer in Asian markets. Bailey Giffords Pacific was a new entry to our top 10 for funds while the Bailey Gifford Managed Pacific Horizon was a new entry to our top 10 list for investment trusts. There are three other Asian-focused trusts in the top 10, Bailey Gifford China Growth, Fidelity China Special Situations, and JP Morgan China Growth and Income. It is interesting, however, to note there are no emerging market-focused funds or trusts in either top 10, The main point of difference between an emerging market and an Asian-focused fund or trust is that emerging market funds have greater flexibility when investing in less mature economies, including the option of investing in Latin America, whereas Asian funds stick to investing across the Asia-Pacific region, although they do in most cases exclude Japan from their remit. Countries that are generally favoured in an Asia-Pacific fund are China, India, Hong Kong, Taiwan and South Korea. Tom, you prefer to passively gain exposure to emerging markets through an index fund or an ETF, which is what you wrote about in your last monthly column. Could you explain why that is the case? Yeah, sure. So so there's a few points. Generally, there's this kind of uh, idea often said of active managers are able to uh, easier add value in emerging markets because they're less efficient. Uh, there's more kind of opportunities to be uncovered. And there is some truth to this, but I think it's kind of increasingly outdated view. So first of all, if you look at the Morningstar passive active barometer, 
it shows that 30% of active managers in the emerging markets beat a basket of passive equivalents or a basket of ETFs and, and uh, index funds tracking the same asset class emerging markets. That's better odds than active managers have in the kind of hyper-efficient markets of the United States and Japan. But it's actually it's really just on par with the UK market, uh, particularly some parts of the UK market. So this idea of active management being always better in, in emerging markets doesn't really make much sense. And it's no mystery why some markets are efficient and harder to beat than others. It's because of the presence of a lot of professional investors. Uh, the US market became professionalized in the 20th century. And so it stands to reason that emerging markets, as more professional investors enter the market and they kind of their financial markets mature, their populations become wealthier and save more, which then gets uh, allocated to institutional investors. It's no, it's no mystery that why these emerging markets will become more efficient. But beyond this, also it kind of it, it's related to the, what the opportunity set is you get from choosing active management in, in emerging markets. So there are small EM funds with, which massively deviate from the index and, and give you really different exposure. But if you look at a lot of the big, big emerging market funds, you aren't getting uh, exposure to lots of small uncovered equities necessarily. But many of them, their top holdings are dominated by the same handful of big Asian tech companies in the same way you know, a US active fund is, is dominated by the same handful of US tech companies. So broadly, I just think if you do want this broad EM exposure, start with a, a passive fund. And if you want to build out in, in terms of more niche exposure in emerging markets, be it small cap, be it some of the less representative countries in the index, then you might want to look at active. But your starting point should definitely be passive, in my view. Thank you, Tom. Plenty of food for thought there. For the next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Peter Spiller, manager of the Capital Gearing Investment Trust. Peter, thank you for your time today. And welcome to the podcast. Very nice to talk to you, Carl. Capital Gearing has an outstanding record of capital preservation. Could you firstly explain how the trust invests and how your aversion to losing money does not lead to returns being sacrificed? I read a broken note from Martin and Co that calculated that since you took over the trust in April 1982, an investment of £100 would have turned into around £23,000. Those are very impressive numbers. Well, you're very kind to say so. I think they are actually a stand comparison with anyone. Equally interesting, actually, is, is that because we are on a zero discount model, that's to say we make certain that the share price and the asset value are always broadly the same. And to achieve that, we buy in stock when there are more sellers than buyers and issue stock when there are more uh, buyers than sellers. And obviously, uh, this trust has, by and large, consistently issued over the last four years since we adopted this policy. And the market cap is now up uh, 1,240 times since I started running it in 1982. So that's that's been quite satisfactory. But let me just back off a little bit and say what we're trying to do and how we achieve it. So in concept, the trust strategy is to look after all of someone's financial assets and to do that, we use all available tools. So that would include equities, nominal bonds, both corporate and uh, government. It would include uh, index-linked bonds and indirectly uh, property. All those have contributed from time to time to uh, good returns, but also some of them are negatively correlated, which has helped a great deal with not losing money because um, we're very proud of the fact that that. In those 38 years, we've only had one year on an annual basis where there's been a 
a negative return. That was 2%. But we were up in 2009, up in uh, 1987, and uh, we're nicely up this year. So just an example of those negative uh, correlations are TIPS holdings, that's US inflation-protected treasuries, have shown a very significant negative correlation with UK equities. And that has meant that the progress of the asset value has been much smoother than if we'd held just the one or just the other. The basis of our, of our uh, approach is, is driven by value. Our fundamental principle is that when values are good, that's to say prospective returns are very high and risk is low, you want to lock those returns in for as long as possible. And back in 1982, everything looked cheap. Real yields were very high. Uh, equity valuations were very low. Balance sheets were in great shape. Uh, inflation was high, but falling. Interest rates were high, but falling. And the result of that was that there were great prospective returns with low risk in all asset classes. But by far the best way of achieving long duration was in equities. And we had substantially all the portfolio at that stage in equities. You fast forward to the late 90s, the situation was quite different. The prospective returns for uh, equities on our models uh, suggested the returns will be negligible over the next 10 years. But bonds still offer great value. And, and we had um, roughly 4.5% real interest rates in uh, government bonds in America. But we had a lot of bonds and with proper duration. So we owned 30-year bonds, for instance. Fast forward to today, and I fear that the situation is not so attractive. So equities offer pretty poor value, very richly priced. And you can just read off the page that nominal bond yields are actually negative for high-quality bonds in quite large parts of the world. The one area where we think there is um, still prospectively very good capital returns are TIPS. And that's because, quite out of consensus, we believe that inflation will be a real threat to investors' capital over the next several years, but that TIPS will achieve capital gains because real yields will decline from here. And finally, just on what has contributed to the performance has been uh, the costs. We as a management company are an employee ownership trust. That's to say, just like in John Lewis and Waitrose, all the employees are partners, but we also like to view ourselves as being in partnership with our clients, with the owners of the shares of Capital Gearing Trust. Therefore, we share the benefits of growth with them and consistently reduce fees. So we're down to a, an expense ratio of 61 basis points now, so it's 0.61 of a percent. That's the cost of running the trust, including the management fee. And we're actually issuing on a basis of, of uh, 30 basis points, so 0.3 of a percent for every pound we're increasing at the moment over 500 million. And therefore, those fees will keep coming down. In a world of relatively poor prospective returns, I think costs will be, become a really big issue. And so it's important to us that we are the lowest possible cost, and we think we're pretty low compared with, with our competitors. So that's rather a long answer, Kyle. I just wanted to um, to go into the equity exposure in the trust mm-hmm. at present. So you currently have just over 40% in equities. Compared to, say, the last five years, is this 
what the waiting has been typically around. And also wanted to ask you whether the waiting has been increased at all since the start of this year, particularly given there was the market sell-off in the first quarter, which may have provided an opportunity to pick up some mispriced opportunities. Yes. Actually, we were quite lucky, I have to admit, because at the end of last year, over Christmas and the very beginning of, of January, the premium of infrastructure stocks particularly got very high. Retail investors got very enthusiastic uh, buying them. And they went out to very big, big premium over their asset value. And we sold essentially all of our exposure, notwithstanding we quite like the long-term outlook, but they just look very frothy. We went into February with unusually high levels of cash and exposure of about 30%. As you say, March provided a number of opportunities and we increased markedly. So we're currently about 45% actually, as we speak today, in risk assets. So we actually haven't increased the normal equities by that much. We're just over 20% in in that, which is not that different. But what we have done is identify a very important theme, I think, which is that real interest rates are very low and will get lower, and that therefore any reliable cash flows will be discounted at a lower rate, particularly if those cash flows are index-linked. We have identified a number of uh, situations in the specialized property world, so this is largely residential, it will be student accommodation, warehousing, all these specialized property areas which have those characteristics and which were available in extraordinary terms. We bought quite a lot of those and, and we're now up to just under 20% in, in that property uh, area, including residential in Germany, for instance. So the total is over 45%. The, the other feature, of course, was that there were some quite exciting opportunities an investment trust, but we might get on to those later. Yes, I will ask you about that shortly. Um, but before we get to that, I noticed a couple of your largest um, holdings are currently ETFs, including the Vanguard FTSE Japan ETF and also two FTSE 100 trackers. Why did you choose ETFs for those markets rather than an investment trust, which you also invest in? Okay, so, so in the downturn in 2009, we bought too little at the bottom. Um, we had a pretty good year in 2009. We'd have had an even better year if we'd bought more equities at the bottom. But liquidity was very poor in, in investment trusts uh, at that time. So we, we uh, determined that if ever we wanted to, we thought the market as a whole uh, was cheap and we wanted more exposure to it, then we should just do it where the liquidity is, which is in ETFs. And gradually over time, we would hope to substitute investment trusts as discount opportunities. So that that's, that's one element. But the other is that investment trusts in Japan particularly are a source of great disappointment to me because they perform pretty well. The NAV performance is pretty well, but they don't have a structure which protects us from discount risk. People always talk about discounts on investment trusts as they're opportunities, but they're also, uh, they are risks. So if a discount can range between Norton and 12%, you'd be very unwise to, to continue to earn it, but it's not. That's why the ZDM uh, model works so well. And I have to say, if some of the Japanese trusts had ZDMs or something uh, very close to it, we would have more exposure to them um, and, and less to the, uh, to the ETF. I mean, it's, it's not perhaps a subject for today's discussion. Um, 
lifestyle, but investment trusts uh, just need to change uh, their corporate governance in, in a lot of cases to reflect the modern conditions uh, that we're operating in. As and when they do, we will get more enthusiastic for putting more investment trusts. You've highlighted the, the risks of you know, trusts that could widen onto even wider discounts when they're trading on a discount. But are there any discount opportunities that you've you've seen over the past couple of months that you deem as attractive? There are a few. I'm not going to actually name a lot of names because we're still buying them. March showed up extraordinary opportunities, not in huge size, I have to say, but we were able to buy Witten, for instance, on a 15 discount in, in the panicky days of March, uh, which is just ludicrous for a well-run trust with good corporate governance. Indeed, we were able to reduce that position uh, at less than five, not terribly long afterwards. So that that was very nice. The history of, of discounts and investment trusts is that they very much react to the direction of the market. In bull markets, uh, discounts tend to tighten. In bear markets, they tend to widen, if anything. But what happened in March was we did see some March widening, but the period of the of the bear market was very brief, as, as you recall. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity uh, to take advantage of that. You tend to get much more alarming discounts when you have persistent bear markets. We haven't had one of those for a very long time. Unsurprisingly, no discounts are, are a bit wider than they were, but there aren't a huge number of opportunities, but there are definitely some which we are actively buying at, at the moment. And finally, Peter, the trust um, has a small holding to gold. Do you think the yellow metal should have a small place in all investor portfolios for its diversification benefits? I mean, do. There's the, there's the immediate answer. So gold's very interesting. We look at the, the long-term value of gold because the, the contention for gold is, it would, is that it will hold its real value. And for, for a very long time, it did. It has been much too volatile to make that claim in the last uh, 30 years or so. But we looked at what that long-term value would be. And just, just very quickly, if you look in the, the price uh, in 1973, just after it became a, a free market, and two years after the gold window was, was closed by Nixon, I'm pretty sure it was an was a, um, uninhibited uh, market price at that, that level. And if you run the CPI from then to now, you get a gold price which is under $600. So obviously it trades at a very big premium to that long-term value. Now, there are reasons why it should trade at that because um, gold reacts to, to fear. So if people are frightened of losing everything, gold could go a lot higher. My favorite example is if there would be political uh, instability in China, that would be uh, very bullish for gold. When it looked as though we were going to get a, a democratic control of both the Senate and the House and the White House in America, we did look as though we were going to have the prospect of such huge uh, uh, stimuli that the situation could have run out of control and gold would have done extremely well then. But gold is not nearly as good a protection against inflation in ordinary circumstances as tips. Tips, um, not only can we uh, measure them and, and, and uh, analyze them and know, know uh, precisely where we are, but uh, they produce a yield. Now, admittedly, the yield is not, um, not positive in real terms, uh, just positive in nominal terms. And um, they, they are uh, tradable um, and, and uh, I think, provide all the essential elements um, 
for for uh, protection against inflation uh, that we want, so long as as inflation is moderate. So if you're looking at hyperinflation, then gold has a, has a role to play. And it's not impossible, but it's not our forecast. And therefore, uh, we, we own gold to tips in a roughly 10 to 1 relationship. Um, and we think that's probably about right. Peter, thank you very much for your time today. Not at all. It's been a pleasure.